This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes Store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm Jackie P. And today on the podcast, we have a guest therapist with us. Her name is Melissa Smith. And Melissa is a certified eating disorder specialist, and she has that certification with the International Association. Um, She owns a specialty clinic dealing with eating disorders and all of the issues that go along with that. And in her free time, (laughs) is it free time? Um, She's an executive coach working with business leaders. So lots of things to talk about in our episode today. Welcome, Melissa. Thanks. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, so tell me what made you interested in, in working with eating disorder, in working with business leaders, all that kind of stuff. Like, what, yeah. how did you find your path? Yeah, absolutely. Well, my, my mother hates hearing this, but I was like, I was always trying to figure out our dysfunction growing <laughs> up. So, <laughs> yeah. But when I was in graduate school, she always, when I come home at the end of a semester, she's like, we're not that crazy, are we? And I'm like, no, I've just learned everyone's crazy. So, uh, <laughs> but you know, growing up, so I had a sibling with a very severe eating disorder. And so I grew up, you know, on the front lines and um, having a lot of fear and a lot of worry Mm -hmm. as I watched my loved one go through severe anorexia from a very young age. And so I think for me, as I went through my college experiences, as I looked at graduate school and my doctoral degree was really trying to make sense of my family experience and trying to make sense of what was happening to my loved one. And so I always, I was kind of one of the unique ones in graduate school where I always knew I wanted to research and take a look at eating disorders because I really wanted to understand my own experience and the the experience of my family. And so that was, in, in many ways, it was really great because I had quite a bit of focus. And so I've been doing eating disorder work for you know, probably 15 years now, and I'm not bored yet. So it's still, yeah, it continues to be really, you know, very challenging work, but there's always something to learn. And it's, it's really uh, very fulfilling work as well. Yeah, I, I find I work in the addiction world. And for most of us in the addiction world, we see eating disorder as kind of under that umbrella of addiction, right? And it's, you never tire of the work because it's always changing in its own ways and evolving in its own ways. So yeah. it keeps being challenging, which keeps you interested. Yeah. It can be rewarding. Yes. So, uh, so did you uh, figure that out? <laughs> did you figure <laughs> out your family dysfunction and be like, okay, now I can have others? Yeah. I, well, I figured some things out. Okay. Yeah. I know it's interesting because when I talk to people, they're like, oh, you must have everything figured out. I'm like, no, I just know, I know some of my own patterns. Like I still mess up. I still, you know, I still have all of my own hangups, but I just know how to label those a little more effectively. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But what I would say, you know, in terms of like how I got into some of the executive coaching and that aspect of the work is it, it kind of represented some balance because this is really intense work. Mm-hmm. And so that's been a nice counterbalance to some yeah. of the disorder work because it is yeah. pretty intense work. 
So what do you find as a professional or even as a family member, like, and we'll talk a little bit in more about the complexities of the person with the eating disorder, but how does it impact family members, siblings, parents, spouses? Well, eating disorders, really, they impact the entire family. And that was cert certainly my lived experience uh, growing up. But, you know, there's been some research and we always we would always share this with families. And, you know, before I started this specialty practice, I was a clinical director at an inpatient treatment center for 10 years. And so we would have families come and visit every month. And so we always shared this research with them that they did some studies of caregiver fatigue. And they looked at um, caregivers of family members who had cancer, who had schizophrenia, who had bipolar disorder, and who had eating disorders. And the caregiver fatigue was most severe for those who had loved ones with eating disorders. Oh, wow. So incredibly stressful. It impacts every every aspect of that family system. And I think one of the ways that it really impacts that is it just there's no way for the family to make sense of what's happening. You know, in many ways, it just defies logic, <laughs> you know, and I think, you know, anecdotally, it's something that we hear all of the time. It's something that my father said all the time, like, why won't you just eat? There's just, it's really hard for right. most of us to wrap our heads around this concept of being afraid to eat or you know, going long periods of time without eating or exercising yourself into oblivion. It just, you know, it doesn't make any sense. And then, of course, how that speaks to what's going on emotionally um, underneath the surface, it's just hits every, every corner of that family system. Yeah. So when you're helping them try to make sense of this and wrap their head around something, of this nature, how, where do you start? How do you explain eating disorders? Yeah, it's a great question. Cause a loaded question. yeah, and it takes a while. I mean, I think the first step, especially with parents and loved ones is to let them know that it's not their fault. Mm -hmm. And I think the eating disorder field, uh, you know, probably when I was first getting going, when I was coming out of graduate school, uh, the field did not do a very good job of really bringing parents into treatment and helping them feel like they were partners in their loved one's treatment. There was a lot of blaming of parents, actually. And, you know, we can see that um, on a larger scale in some areas of psychology. But parents were really made to blame, you know, for um, causing the eating disorder and mothers especially were the bad guys. And so I, you know, the first thing that I do is really help parents understand that eating disorders have many factors that contribute to them. And so I like to give them a lot of education around those factors and also just help them with building some resilience, you know, that sometimes I'll, I'll talk to them about this idea that like, you know, you can blame yourself, but it's really not going to do any good. And we, we need you focused. We need you to be really resilient because uh, you, you need to be the one helping your loved one to, 
you know, to keep boundaries and that sort of thing. And so that's really the first piece. And then just helping them with the education in terms of what are the factors. And then the, the first step is always structure. Structure is the name of the game when it comes to um, the first stage of eating disorder treatment. And so that structure looks like what? Is that like, I mean, I'm guessing if they're in a residential place, there's a lot of structure. But yeah. even if they're not in residential at home, there's going to be some changes to the schedule. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, our clinic, for instance, we're, we're completely outpatient. And so, you know, especially like for teenagers, but even with adults, they need to, they need to create that structure. We need to help them replicate that structure. And so the first step is really to normalize eating patterns. And so regardless of where they are at on the continuum of eating disorder pathology, so if there's binge eating versus restrictive behavior, the first goal is to really normalize those eating patterns. So we want them to start eating regularly throughout the day. So as much as possible, can we start to pin down some regular, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You know, a lot of times we don't worry so much about the amount, but just getting some eating consistency. And then of course, dialing in um, the amount of food that they're eating so we can get some predictability because, you know, for instance, with restricting, right? Like if there's a lot of restricting behavior, that will often set someone up for rebound binging behavior. And so we we try and give them a lot of education in terms of if we can help normalize those eating patterns, that can go a long way for settling down some of those most those most troublesome symptoms that most clients are pretty motivated to get rid of, such as binging. So is there an average age for somebody like finally wanting to tackle their eating disorder and coming in, is there an average age of the client seeking treatment? Boy, you know, the hallmark of eating disorders is ambivalence. (laughs) And if we think about therapists, I mean, most therapists don't like working with individuals with eating disorders and they kind of, you know, they'll say, oh, they're just resistant. They don't want to change. And, and the truth is there is a lot of ambivalence and that's because there's a lot of benefit that comes from those eating disorder behaviors, right? Like it, it serves a, a function and it serves a need. And so I would say there's, there's not a, there's not an age where you have someone who's more motivated for treatment. But what I would say is we kind of look at where are they in the development of that eating disorder? So earlier in the development of an eating disorder, usually they have very low motivation for change because they're in those early stages of the eating disorder, they're still getting a lot of benefits Mm -hmm. from those behaviors, right? So maybe they're losing weight and they're getting a lot of attention and their genes are fitting better and they really like that. And so they're kind of feeling this boost. Um, You know, we kind of talk about this false boost to their sense of self. And so motivation for addressing these issues is super low, you know, versus someone who's maybe been dealing with these issues for decades or at least several years, right? The benefits of those 
uh, behaviors are really, you know, wearing thin to use a bad right. pun. <laughs> and and they are really experiencing more of the costs associated okay. with the eating disorder. And so that's usually kind of the evolution that uh -huh. we pay attention to. How long have you been struggling? How intense has it been? How many costs, whether that's, you know, physical health costs, costs to relationships, costs to functioning, right? Like, so have you had to maybe quit school or have you lost a job because, you know, you haven't been able to make it to work or you had to do a medical withdrawal from school, that sort of thing. And as we kind of look at the impact of functioning, that's where you see motivation for treatment and motivation for change start to increase. Okay. Yeah. So this isn't something, this is something I typically refer out to people who have this specialty. Yeah. Um, but some of the things that I've read in the last couple of years, I would say, is that typically eating disorders used to be more of a female issue, but we're starting to see, unfortunately, some of the males start to catch up, right? Or yeah. get in the game, so to speak. Yes. Are so, you seeing that as well? Yeah. So we're seeing, so we're seeing a few dynamics here. The first one I think that we're seeing is, first of all, culturally, right? We're seeing the lens of criticism shifting to men as well as women, right? Like women have always been under, under that glare in terms of the thin ideal, but we're really starting to see that with men in the last 10 years, especially where there, you know, there are male beauty products and, you know, we think about for men, it's not the thin ideal, it's the strong ideal, right? So it's the muscular male. And so they're feeling more of that pressure. And from the research, we know that media pressure is definitely a significant uh, factor that contributes to the development of eating disorders. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the factors that we're seeing. One of the other factors um, that I think we're seeing is that there's more acceptance of counseling and therapy for men in general, right? And so I think we've, we've always had plenty of men with eating concerns, but they were not showing up for treatment. There was so much stigma around that. And there's still a lot of stigma around uh, men and body image disturbances and eating concerns, but that has decreased somewhat. And so you are seeing them present in treatment. You know, when I got my first job out of my doctoral studies, which was in 2006, I'm dating myself, there was one treatment program in the country that, that served men oh. with eating disorders. And now in 2019, I would say just about every single treatment program in the country serves men and women. So, you know, we've seen a huge shift just in access to treatment and access to care. Yeah. So for a long time, even if a man was, you know, even if he had awareness of, oh my goodness, I have an eating disorder. And second, he was willing to get treatment. There wasn't anywhere for him to go. There wasn't anywhere for him to go. And so that's really shifted a lot in the past 15 years. So you mentioned one of the differences maybe between the genders is men aren't seeking that kind of ideal thinness. Are there other ways that it breaks down differences amongst the gender? Are they similar and each unique? 
How does that look? So some of the factors that we see, you know, I've just been reviewing some of the research from Brene Brown, which you know, her, her research is so good, right? And she just talks so much about shame. And for women, the two biggest factors for shame, the first one for women is body image, right? So that's a huge factor for women. The second one for women is mothering. So, right, like that's a fun party right. um, for most of us as women. No wonder we feel guilty all the time. So if we think about body image and women, right, the image that's really portrayed to us is the thin ideal. If you don't fit this specific mold, right, you're not good enough. And, you know, if we think about this question of, am I good enough, right? Many of us struggle with this question. That's a big question. That's a hard right. one to answer, right? But, but what happens is culturally, we have a substitute question, which becomes much easier to answer. And so instead of asking, am I good enough? We, we ask the question, am I thin enough? And there are lots of ways that you can answer that question. You can answer that question by comparing yourself to women all day long on social media, <laughs> all day long when you, you know, go to the gym or you go to the grocery store, whatever, with your jeans, with, with everything, with every time you get on a scale, um, with your calorie count, everything, right? And so that is a really powerful factor, especially for women, Right. And with men, it, it really, you know, we talk about, you know, one of the factors actually that Brene Brown talks about with men is that it's hard for them to do anything right because women want them to be open. They want them to be communicative, but they, but men also get punished if they're too vulnerable. Right. And so men have a very narrow window of acceptable emotionality, right? That also translates over into body image. You, you, we want you to be fit, but we don't want you to be, you know, too concerned with it. But the body image focus for men has really intensified in the last um, 15 years. You're seeing a lot more attention to that. And I think part of that increase is really correlated to the increase in social media and especially Instagram. And there's some good research on that, that social media and Instagram in particular, because it's so heavily focused on images that when, right. when uh, people are watching these images on social media, the social comparison just goes through the roof and it really, really um, feeds into negative body image for both men and women. Right. Well, because it has, it's, Instagram is mostly focused on images, but it also has so many filters. Yes. Yes. Right. So, yeah. So we're yeah. getting this average person who doesn't necessarily look like an average person. Yeah. And Instagram, I mean, I like Instagram. I think it's fun, but it's more about presenting than interacting. Yes. You know, yeah, you've got sure. followers and, you know, where even like Facebook, like, right, I've got my issues with Facebook, but Facebook is more about interacting than yeah. Instagram. And so right. even just kind of the dynamics of that platform feeds into some of that social comparison. 
we kind of started out talking about how you help the loved ones and the family members. What do you, how do you approach that? Or what do you add to that if it's actually the person with the eating disorder? Yeah. So if we, if we go back to this idea of ambivalence, the first thing that I talk about with the individual is I let them know that their ambivalence is okay. Uh And I think that that's where, I think that's where a lot of clinicians actually get it wrong right out of the gate with this population is they kind of get into um, a turf battle from day one around, you know, the behaviors and kind of the, we're going to get, we're going to kind of separate you from these behaviors. And so I always, always just really try and help them understand why that ambivalence makes perfect sense, right? To, to really align with them on how that, how those eating disorder behaviors have actually served them pretty well. And usually what I find is that really opens them up to saying, yes, but there are ways that it is not serving me. And they start making my case to me, you know, and and I don't have to battle them at all. And that usually, you know, goes a long way for really building that um, trust. But I really take an acceptance and commitment approach to treatment where, Uh, you know, we're always acknowledging the difficulty of the work because they never, ever want to do the work, right? Like no one wants to gain weight when if thinking about eating disorder treatment. I've hardly ever met a woman that wants to gain weight, Mm -hmm. a couple, but not very many. And so we're always acknowledging the difficulty of the task and why it's important and why it aligns with their values. And so I see, you know, one of my jobs as, as really helping them keep their eye on the horizon mm-hmm. in terms of why is this important? Why does this matter? And really helping them to tolerate the difficulty of what they need to do in this moment. Yeah. And I, that's, that's a really big part of the work because if we think about eating disorders, it is a difficulty tolerating one's emotional experience, right? I mean, that's what we see with the emotional avoidance. And so helping them to see that, no, you can stay here and right. you can tolerate it and you can do it. And that this is, this is actually how you, this is how you develop strength. This mm-hmm. is how you build confidence. This is how you develop trust in yourself going through, you know, these difficult moments, but they don't know yeah. how they go through it. I, f- I find often that like as human beings, right, our brain wants to simplify as much as possible for us. And sometimes that's great, right? I'm always glad when I get in my car, I don't really have to concentrate on ha- how to get home. Yeah. And my brain is really streamlined that process, but sometimes it can over streamline. Right. And so now I'm in this binary and I, I don't hold two kind of conflicting feelings or two kind of conflicting ideas that I want to let in, in your situation that we're talking about, I want to let go of the eating disorder and I don't, Yeah. and I don't have to like decide on one or the other. I just hold both. And I know that both of those realities are true for me and I have to keep moving forward with both yeah. of those feelings. Yeah. That we, that we learn to hold complexity. Mm-hmm. Right. right. And, and have, have some compassion for ourselves in the holding of that complexity. Right. right. Yeah. And that's a, that's a really big 
big piece of that mm -hmm. puzzle. On an outpatient basis, how long is the average for an eating disorder treatment? I mean, I know they, it's something they continue to work on like their whole life pretty much, right? Similar to other addictions. Yeah, you know, it's, it's pretty intense work. And the length of treatment really depends on, first of all, how long they have struggled with an eating disorder, and then certainly the motivation for change. So for instance, if I'm working with a young child, sadly, we're seeing more mm -hmm. young kiddos with eating disorders. But if I'm working with a young kiddo who has not had a long history of an eating disorder, and I have very motivated parents who are absolutely on board and can take my marching orders because I get very directive okay. <laughs> in that treatment because uh -huh. we're we really have to. But in those cases, that's actually very rewarding work because we can turn those behaviors around within, you know, really six, six to eight months. And oh, so, wow. that's, yeah, that's very, you know, that's very exciting work. Yeah. And it's actually it's very kind of preventative. Yeah, it's very preventative. It's and it's, sort of preventative. Yeah. And it's essential that we move very quickly, right? Because any amount of time that you spend with, you know, especially a child who is medically compromised or weight compromised, it's a big danger zone. And so we get pretty aggressive about mm -hmm. our treatment structure in terms of weight restoration. Of course, we work very closely with physicians and dietitians to structure that process. But with kids, the biggest um, factor is making sure parents are on board. And usually they are because, of course, they're frightened and they right. want to do what's best. With kids, right, we have parents who are able to really control several of those factors. And so we can create that behavior change very quickly. And it really resolves a lot of the cognitive and the psychological deficits very quickly. Because it's kind of this question of the chicken or the egg, right? Are there vulnerability factors that um, kind of lay the foundation for the development of eating disorders? Or are there consequences of malnutrition that are contributing to these cognitive symptoms and psychological symptoms. And what we know is it's both. And that if you refeed a child or an adult, we see a, a huge resolution in their symptomology. So, right, if you have someone who is underweight and malnourished, they will display absolutely OCD symptomology. They will display manic symptoms. They will be paranoid and you won't see a resolution of those symptoms until they are refed. And so in a very real way, food becomes the medicine. And, and that's because like on like hunger is such a primal thing. Is that why you'll see them get so kind of dysregulated and, and have all of those other issues until the body is getting fed? Yes, right. We think about the brain and the body. They work as a function of nutrition, right? So we'll see a drop in, in serotonin. We'll see a drop in dopamine, right? So, and this all comes from the Ansel Keys study, which was some research that was conducted during World War II with conscientious objectors. Of course, we could never do that study now, but we, but we learned so much about that. And it was a large scale starvation study. And these were all men who 
psychologically and physically fit and healthy, you know, did all of these psychological measures before, and then they put them on a starvation diet, which is not near as severe as what we see in anorexia. And they all displayed the exact symptoms that we see in anorexia. So hoarding food, binging food, displaying a lot of obsessiveness and compulsion, manic behaviors, all sorts of things. And that through the restoration and refeeding process, those symptoms all resolved. So so that's always the push is, you know, you don't like the anxiety, you don't like the OCD symptoms, let's get you refed and see where your baseline is. Uh And then we can help you with, you know, whatever residual symptoms might still be in place. But to finish with the question, so, you know, with a child, it might be just a few months. But with someone who I tend to work with a lot of women in midlife who, who have maybe struggled for decades. And so their course looks very different. Yeah. It's a lot more complex, much more complex, a lot, a lot more costs, a lot more medical concerns, a lot more relationship impacts. And so in those situations, sometimes the goal is full recovery. Sometimes the goal is actually you know, an improvement to quality of life. Those are some of the moments for me as a clinician where I've kind of had to do a little bit of soul searching and looking at, you know, what is a reasonable goal here and what are we after? Because I think in my young and idealistic days, I was like, yes, full recovery for everyone. I, I don't know that that's always the best goal for people or even a realistic goal. Right. Sometimes we have to be, as therapists, right, as the helping professionals, we have to be okay with more of a harm reduction yeah. model. Yeah, absolutely. So, but you know, like we work with a lot of college age students and really it can be for those individuals who haven't struggled for too long, it can be, you know, anywhere from a year to two to three years, but it is in general more long-term treatment. Mm-hmm. And it just impacts every system. Right. That makes sense. Anything else that you wanted to talk about today or share with the listeners? Yeah. Sometimes after I talk about eating disorders, I'm like, oh, it sounds so depressing, but (laughs) it's really not. It's really not. Um, the, The thing that I always like to communicate is that you know, hope actually is real (laughs) and that full recovery is possible. I mean, I think a lot of, a lot of the clients that I've worked with over the years, like they haven't believed that recovery is possible. And, and I think, you know, I've always just said, well, well, let's, let's be willing, right? Like, let's just, let's just be open and see what might be possible. And I think one of the, the biggest challenges for this population is right. Like they, they have to find a way to navigate their relationship with their body and with food every single day, 24, (laughs) 24 hours of every single day. And so absolutely no relief from the work. Right. And so in that way, it's just, unrelenting. But I also think that's really the gift 
of the work, like they really have an opportunity to, right. to be present and to, to really live in alignment with their values. And the individuals that I have seen that have really been able to fully recover and surpass what they ever believed was possible for them were those who were able to really identify values that were more meaningful to them than their fears, you know? Mm -hmm. So to be able to move forward in the face of fear and uncertainty and, you know, it's pretty powerful and certainly very inspiring to see that. Right. And I think people who do the work that you do often are that, like, oftentimes they've got to start letting go of some things. But before they can let go of something, they have to know what they're going to be able to grab a hold of. Yeah. And, and sometimes that is the treatment professional's hope, right? Or it's the yeah. treatment professional who has built just a little bit of trust to say, I'll, I'll catch you, right? Or we're going to work on this together and I'm going to be here for you. Yeah. And that's such an important piece for clients to face some of those fears and to open themselves up for options that they don't think are possible. Yeah, absolutely. I often say that I'll carry the hope for you until you're ready to carry it yourself. And, right. and I think that that is that can be very comforting and reassuring for them. Yeah. And usually they get to the point where they are ready to carry that. And that's, that's pretty exciting to see. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. It's been great to have you on. Yeah. So happy to join you. Yeah. I'm going to put a link in our show notes to your website so that if people just wanted to kind of read some more, you've got some great information on your website. So I'll put yeah. a link in there for that. Perfect. Yes. We'd, we'd love to have people check us out. We've got a blog and it's fun. We, we like to have fun and give people lots of great information. So that's awesome. Well, thank you. Okay. Thank you. Take care. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Don't wait to share your story till it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Pro of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me remember I can't do it all. Help me to take things one step at a time. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.